In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. This is Sandy, and welcome to another episode of Money Tales. Can you imagine creating a very complicated feature-length film just after graduating from college? Our guest today, Tiffany Schlein, had the confidence from her accomplishments and accolades during school, plus some chutzpah, to give this a shot. The project was a bust, and Tiffany tells us the story about why failing big young was such a gift to her. Hey there, Cammie here. Let me tell you a little bit about Tiffany. After her debut movie failure, she shifts her career towards technology and creates the Webby Awards. If you don't know the Webbies, they're the Oscars of the internet. Tiffany also returned to film and then writing. She's made more than 30 films and her book, 24-6, The Power of Unplugging, One Day a Week, recently came out in paperback. During the conversation, Tiffany talks about how meaningful it has been for her family to keep her deceased father's home. This inspired today's financial insight at the end of the interview, where we cover considerations for when you want to keep a home in the family. First, though, here's our conversation with Tiffany. Tiffany Schlein, welcome to Money Tales. I'm so happy to be here to go deep and wide on this very interesting topic. (laughs) Thank you. We, We appreciate that. We'd like to start by you telling us a brief summary of your journey to date. What got you here? Maybe a couple pivotal moments you can share with us. I was supposed to be a brain surgeon. My father was a surgeon. Very interested in the brain. My mom's a psychologist. My father did operate on the brain. I didn't become one because I became a filmmaker and I've made a lot of films about the brain, which is the medium I chose to explore. And super into tech, I founded the Webby Awards in my 20s, ran it for a decade, sold it about 14 years ago, and started a film studio and make a lot of films about issues shaping our lives and do global events around and do a lot of speaking and just wrote my first book this last year. That's a lot. All that is a lot. I don't know. What was the most pivotal of all those? Well, I was thinking about this. I mean, I failed really big young and I think it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I, you know, had done really well. I went to UC Berkeley. I won the film award there. I would, I gave the speech at the graduation. I was just like flying high and I had the uh, young, exuberant confidence to start a feature film right out of college when I hadn't gone to film school, but like did a summer program at NYU. And I raised all this money from family and friends. And it was a complicated film. It wasn't a simple film. It was like 40 locations, hundreds of actors. And I totally failed. I like ran out of money. The way I would get out of debt three times, the way I got out of debt was to work in technology, which had been my other love growing up. 
And that failure so publicly, right out of being kind of a star from college, was literally the best thing that ever happened to me because I went into debt and had too much pride to go to my parents to help me. So I was sleeping on my friend's couches for a while and went into a depression. It was a very difficult period. And I slowly, and then I went back to the film. I did that like two or three times for two and a half, three years. And then I finally realized that I had to stop working on this film and go on a different path, which was a really difficult decision, but really important. And shortly thereafterwards, I started the Webby Awards, but there was a lot of many things I had to build myself up, my confidence back up. And then I did start the Webby Awards in my 20s. And then that was like a rocket ship. But that failure early on, when you asked me a pivotal moment, I've had a lot of beautiful moments in my career, but I feel like that one grounded me in such humility and a sense of failure so young that I could still taste today, that it's made every success so much sweeter. And I really have a lot of empathy for anyone going through a hard time and depression and creative blocks and running out of money. And I think it's really shaped my sense of empathy, which I think you could see in a lot of my work. There's another pivotal moment it was, of course, meeting my husband <laughs> because we are, that was, you know, it's been so great because we really did both meet at a, we were starting our careers and being with someone where we both were at the beginning of careers and in equals, which I'm so grateful for. I just, I know how hard, as I get older, I just know what just total luck that was having him as a, such an amazing advisor and collaborator, because we have collaborated a lot, has been really incredible. Also in terms of money, because he's a tenured professor and that kind of security I had never even knew existed before. And then of course, I would also say becoming a, a parent, you know, of course, that's so pivotal. Tiffany, before we, I think there's a lot of questions and a lot to discover just in terms of this large film project and failing in the financial aspects of it. But let's go back in time a little bit more. Tell us about what it was like growing up for you. What was money like in your home? And what did you take away from growing up about money that carried with you? My early years were really wonderful, very idyllic. My father was an up and coming surgeon who hadn't really come from money. So, you know, they bought a house in Mo Valley and my mother really wanted to go back to school to get her PhD in psychology. And then when I was eight, a total bomb was thrown into my life where my parents had a really, really ugly divorce. And they fought about money so much. I mean, this was in the 70s, early 80s when there was no talk about how do the kids feel about any of this or maybe we shouldn't say this in front of the kids or they just... They fought so much about it. Like anything Can you tell us about things? some of those arguments that you remember and, and your yeah. reaction to hearing them? Like if I wanted to do something, go ask your mother. If I wanted to do something, go ask your father. So we were in the middle. They didn't speak for years. So we were in the middle of these contentious, screaming fights. And my parents are wonderful parents. I mean, I would say they are each two of my best friends. I did lose my father 11 years ago, but he's still with me all the time. But I'm very close to them, but they had... I think now that I'm 50, I would say that was the most traumatic event of my life was their four-year divorce with lawsuits, private detectives. It was super ugly and it made me look to money. All I wanted was financial independence, so I never would have to go to them. I had a job since I was 10 years old. I helped a woman string beads doing jewelry. I babysat. I did car washes. As soon as I could get a job in a store, I did. 
when I was 15 years old, one of my best friends from LA, her family was going to take her out of school for a year and live on a boat. And she invited me to meet her in Greece. And I remember my dad being like, no way, I'm, am I paying for that? I'm like, I'm going to pay for it. And I worked every day at a one hour photo mat for a year and I saved up and I went to meet her. And I just have always looked at my own money. If I didn't have to ask them, there wouldn't be a fight. Mm-hmm. And I could just pay for it myself. And I think that, you know, actually That's I do powerful. love it. Yeah. Oh, it's very, and especially really being a woman and understanding how much my mother wanted to get her PhD. It was really about independence. And I really understand that. And even in our household, I am the CFO for sure. I mean, he's very involved, but I'm managing the budgets and the taxes and, and I enjoy it. To me, it calms me down to look at a budget or to look at our savings or to put away. And I'm, I, we do, we have really saved a lot. And I think it was, you know, so drawn from my own childhood of money. And my husband came from a family where money was a big issue. They didn't have a lot of money, businesses. His father's business was very difficult. And I think that really, he'll say that's what made him want to be a tenured professor. So I think we both came from these very unstable money home childhoods. And so having security has been very important to us. That being said, my career, there's been a lot of ups and, <laughs> ups and downs. I mean, you know, that first one with the Zoli's brain, but then, you know, the Webbies, I, you know, I started to do very well. And then I, I did sell the Webbies, which was interesting because just like in the last couple of months, they then sell the bigger company sold the portion. I'm just reaping the benefits of a very old sale. But I think that, as a filmmaker, an independent filmmaker, you know, when I ran the Webby Awards, we got funding through sponsorship. And, you know, there was a point during the first internet when we were getting like half a million dollar sponsorship multi-year and then the internet crash happened. And I had this huge staff and I had to lay off people. I had to convince two-year deals with sponsors that they were to stay on for the next year. That was like crash course business school. And I should also say that When I started the Webby Awards in my 20s, it was for this company, IDG. And we later spun it out because it became so successful on its own. But at IDG, I was one of the only women CEOs within the parent company. And most of the men had gone to Harvard Business School and most of them were Irish. (laughs) And when I used to have to present at these board meetings, oh my God, I was like scrunching my toes the whole time. I was so nervous and I would prepare so hard because the reports they would ask me, I would over-prepare. I was like, they wouldn't know how much I was nervous. But I learned so much how to be in a board meeting. I mean, for years of presenting at these hardcore, all-male Harvard Business School board meetings when I was in my 20s. <laughs> I mean, so like early. You got your MBA. That's amazing. And then Maya Drazen, who was my partner with the Webbies, who now is head of marketing at Time Magazine. She's like one of my best friends. But she and I ended up going after the crash of the first internet boom. We applied to Harvard Business School to this executive program called Managing Change, Organizational Change. We're sitting there with all these people. And this is before we had laid everyone off. And we were like, we don't want to run a big company. It was like so apparent that everything they were teaching to was like scale and growth and tons of employees. And, and it was a real epiphany for me because I just realized that creatively, it's very draining for me to manage a lot of people and that I can do it, but I'm just not going to be able to do creative things. And that's my love. So 
we left that. We we're probably the only people that left that Harvard Business School program and realized we needed to get very small and we needed to sell the Webby Awards. And then shortly after that, we got it lean and strong enough to sell. And then we sold it shortly after that. I <laughs> kind of crazy. I, I so thought about anything for it's so long. Great. Oh, wait. So, and there's one other thing I have to tell you about my mom because I once gave a, a keynote to some women's conference and it was all about ask for more. Whenever I've negotiated anything, I always, I have a cadre of advisors and mentors, but the men always have me ask for more than the women do. So I gave this whole keynote and I talked about my mom was very instrumental in my idea about money because every weekend she would take me to the Marin County flea market. There used to be an amazing flea market in Sausalito and Marin City that's no longer there, but I loved it. My mom and I would go and I'm super into vintage clothing. So I was like, I tried on all my looks in my teenage years from the flea market, but she would give me $5 and she taught me how to negotiate. And she would be like, ask for half that they're asking. And if they don't do it, just walk away. And you have to walk away so confidently. And I remember one time I didn't do it confidently enough. And she's like, nope, do it again. Really walk away. You have to really walk away. And I am telling you, I have thought of that so many times, so many times in business and anything to really, you really have to, believe you can you have to actually be able to walk away to get to this deal my father he was incredibly generous and I mean, there's so many interesting things about my dad and money but my mom did teach me how to negotiate what a great lesson to learn so early in life yeah. tiffany can we go back to the first feature film project and raising money from family and friends in your early 20s how much were you raising? I mean, I always had a lot of chutzpah. I mean, my parents believed in me, which made me believe in myself and like that I could do anything. And so I would just walk into a presentation and my approach to fundraising, I mean, I've raised money for so many different things, the webbies, for movies, for, and my approach is always, you know, this is happening with or without you and you better jump on this train or else you're going to miss out on the most amazing experience. <laughs> that's usually, and that's, and I never have walked out without raising. You had those skills early on, you're raising all this money. And then tell us about running out of money because you oh. said that, that happened three times, right? So what was going on inside your mind, inside your body? Oh my God. It was so intense because, okay, I just graduated from UC Berkeley. I was doing three jobs. I was a professor's assistant and I was a waitress, which everyone should have to do for money. And I was an, a secretary in my dad's medical office. And I had those three jobs while I was also making this movie and raising money. So I would often like get a check from an investor and then go to the bank and then go to the set in between all of these jobs. And we just didn't plan well the first time. The first time we just didn't raise enough. We had to finish shooting and actors were leaving to other places in the country. And, I, and then, so that part, but I thought that was going to be okay. I was going to figure it out. So then I went and got a job and climbed out. And then the next time, maybe it was the third time I had a creative block and one of the only in my life. And it was so scary. I just didn't know all these people had invested, all these people had worked on the movie and what was in my head for the movie wasn't translating to the movie. And now fortunately I've made 30 films. It, now it does happen. It takes a long time, any film. But when I was young, I was too young. I wasn't seasoned enough to have what was in my head come out on the celluloid. And I was so embarrassed. And because I asked family and friends, which I never do anymore, by the way, I never do. 
Can you say why that is? Because everywhere I went, there was no separation. So everywhere I went, people were like, well, how's the film? How's my investment? How's this? I had no separation. So now it's very separate because I knew how horrible and, and I was felt so much shame that I had failed. And when I was younger in my family, very high achieving Jewish family, we were, we'd fought for things, you know, my grandfather's family all died in the Holocaust. We're like fighters and you never quit. You never give up. Well, a really important lesson was that I needed to quit. I needed to stop working on this project because it wasn't working. So I think it was very humiliating for me because I did feel so confident <laughs> that I was going to succeed to have to tell people it didn't work out. And I would be embarrassed to go to out anywhere because I didn't want to have to give them the update. You talk a lot about, at your core, it's about financial independence and security. That's what you, you learned at an early age and it really felt right. Yet you chose a career that's is really hard to have that security and financial independence. You know, you have this creative passion and you chose this career. Tell us how you reconciled that. How did you get comfortable with that? Well, the Webbies, I was like building my way. You know, every year I made a bit more money. It was like I really kind of built my career back after that failure. The Webbies just like exploded and the web and I was a woman in tech, which was so rare. And I remember when I went to IDG, they were like, we own the word Webby Award. We don't have any budget. I'm like, I'm an independent filmmaker. I know how to do things with no budget. <laughs> also, I had so many people volunteer that it really, I think, taught me how to be a good boss because they could always just leave. You better make it fun and interesting. And since the Webby, so that was all sponsorship driven. And then we started to charge for our call for entries to diversify our revenue, which was really important. That's very important to me too. Like I get diversifying revenue is always important. So then at the film studio, I started a first a for-profit and we have made films so many different ways. We've raised money from donors and foundations. That's a big portion. We once had AOL came to me and said, I want you to do an original series and handed me a big check. That was the most fun I've ever had making a show because I didn't have to raise money. They were just like, here's a big check, go make a series. And I got nominated for an Emmy and we did a second season and I charged them double after that. It was like, wow, I love this. I love this. I'll tell you something really big is that I really liked writing a book because I love the exchange of commerce. I really didn't realize how much I would love like all my book signings before the pandemic. I had a big book tour in New York, Toronto, LA, everything. I loved the process of somebody buying. Like I spent two to three years of my life on this book my book here. Here it is. And they're going to spend for the hardcover it was $28. And I'm handing, and it was this beautiful exchange because in the early days of making movies, I would sell DVDs at the end of a screening. And then that completely went away. And then everyone just expects films are free, Netflix and YouTube. And, and I don't like that, that they're just like, it feels like there's no value. And so when I had the book, I really enjoyed like, here's my book. I watched them pay the cashier before they got to me. I would sign it. And I was like, Woo, I love this. But one thing, a big way I've made my living for the last, um, my whole career was speaking. And I do get paid a good amount to speak. And it's always like wildly, like sometimes a crazy amount and sometimes not. And if I really believe in the organization, I won't charge them anything. But even though you can't count on those, it has consistently been almost half of my income every year since I started the Webbies. So that to me proves in the faith of just things will happen. You don't know. They come out of the blue. But during the pandemic, all of that went away. <laughs> so that was like, 
whoa, every talk, I had all these talks booked for money. And in March, it was like dominoes, like that got canceled, that got canceled, that got canceled. So that is gone of my income. It kind of bothers me, like this one talk, this corporation was like, we want you to give a keynote to our 1,200 employees. And I was like, this was recently. And this was after me giving like five months of free talks during the pandemic, which I was happy to do because my book is all about boundaries around screens and was very relevant. And I was happy to kind of hopefully help people's lives around tech. And I said to him, this was like a month ago, I'm like, you must have a budget for speakers. I'm like, this is my time. This is what I do. You either need to buy a book for every one of your employees or I need a speaking fee. And it felt very satisfying to say. But it was kind of like, I have been doing all these free talks during the pandemic, but there's a certain point where I'm offering something valuable. That's right. And I need to get paid for it. I'm hearing your underlying theme is diversification. So you're spread it out and, and sometimes one's really successful and sometimes the other one is not and vice versa. It's been very interesting reevaluating. Like I really do ask myself that question. What if money was no option? What would you really want to spend your time doing? Because a lot of times with, if you get your money from foundations and grants, and there's been a couple moments in our film studio where we're starting to write the grant for what they want instead of what we want to do. Like we started with something we wanted to do and they're like, well, our objectives have changed and now we're looking at this space and then we try to contort our proposal to still be appealing to them. And then after a certain layers of that, you're like, whoa, I don't even want to do that anymore. We just recently, if money was no option, what would we do? And you know, right now, my book 24-6, The Power of Unplugging One Day a Week is coming out in paperback next week. And that's been super exciting because it's done really well and it's helped so many people's lives, and especially during the pandemic. There's so much more interest around it. So the paperback coming out is exciting. When I get my dashboard every week, I check sales and it's like the audio version, the ebook version, the hardcover. Now the paperback's been added, which is so much cheaper than the hardcover. And so everyone says it opens up the book to this whole new audience that only buys paperback. So I'm super excited about having the book be like liberated to that many more people. And then we are releasing this election film that we just did on our own. We didn't get any funding for because we were so worried about our country. And then we have this proposal that as soon as we get past the election, because it's so hard to focus on anything, we are going to start pitching to the streamers. And it's going to be based on the book 24-6, kind of technology and humanity and, and how do you live well with having to be on screens all the time and how do you create your own boundaries? Because when my father died of brain cancer, I mentioned... He was such a big part of my life. 11 years ago, my family and I decided to turn off all screens one day a week and to be present and reground ourselves. And it has been the best thing we've ever done. I call it my tech Shabbats. That's what I wrote the book on. And because I founded the Webby Awards, it's like the double irony that obviously I love technology. My husband's a <laughs> robotic. We're both into it. It's just I'm not into it 24-7. And then the pandemic accelerated having us all having to be on screens all the time. So it's even more needed now. And it feels like even more of a reprieve and an oasis of calm in this crazy world we're living in right now. Tiffany, I'm really enthralled by all of the balance that you wrestle with in your life, right? Technology, taking a break from technology, creativity, but also needing money to fund lifestyle and projects. That's amazing that you've learned how to balance this all. Not always balance, but it's a constant uh, negotiation, even mentally. I've always wanted to make a film about money. I've even talked to this woman about funding it who works with women and money because I feel like money is, people have such fear around it and anxiety and it's so psychological. 
And I would love to make like a, a short film, like five to eight minute film that really unpacks money because I was feeling very anxious. And then we had a meeting with our financial planner and we have put a lot away, we do have money for college for the girls. And it just calmed me down so much. And I think that so much is psychological. And the truth is, even though I have all these different income streams and there's nothing that you can rely on, it's so different than my husband's income, which is so steady, it always rounds out to be the same, if not a little more each year, which is crazy. But I love knowing that because, I mean, there's some years where it's dipped, but just on a whole, if you look at my, what I'm 50 and my 25 year career, it's gone up and there, you know, sometimes gone up more, sometimes gone a little less, but generally up. It just gives me faith in the process of living and consistently working hard and being kind and putting out good things to the world. You're going to be able to keep doing what you want to do if you do what you love and you're passionate about it. We're excited about this movie. We love it. <laughs> I might call you through about it because the, please do. I think it's so needed. I mean, I always make a film about something I just feel like it's really needed. I've never seen a film that made me exhale about money and think about it differently. And my father used to always quote, kind of like money's like manure. The more you spread it around, the more it will grow. You know, <laughs> and I can tell you, we have a donation meeting every year with our daughters. And growing up, philanthropy wasn't really talked about, but it's not like we have a ton to give, but all year we get all the requests. And every December we have a folder of all the requests and we have a list of all the organizations we've given to. And we talk about it with our daughters. Some they get to choose like SBCA or, you know, the mountain play or whatever, but we have a family meeting about it. And I am so glad we've done that because it, it's a discussion and it makes them feel a part of it. And the one other thing that Ken and I did like three years ago is made a PowerPoint presentation to our daughters about money. All the things we wish we knew when we were like 10. What things were on the list? What was in there? We need to know. Compound interest that if you put money away when you're their age. So our younger daughter just made $400 babysitting this summer. And I said, you know, and my older daughter wanted to start, like, let's start a Roth IRA for both of you. And let's watch it grow because some of the most exciting things of that financial planning meeting was just money I put away a long time ago. This is grown, grown, grown. Tiffany, who do you talk about money with outside of your family? If I get nervous about money, I maybe will talk to my sister (laughs) and then she'll just remind me I shouldn't be nervous. You know, we do have this financial advisor. We have a great banker. And by making a switch to a personal bank, like that knows your name, there's a whole team, they know my whole family that has such a been such a beautiful experience. I'm so grateful for it. And then negotiating deals and stuff. I have my cadre of advisors on how much should I ask for for this film series or for the book deal or, you know, I go to my mentors and friends and I'm in a writer's group. Sometimes we'll talk about, you know, but I I do have, I have mentors and advisors that I always go to on stuff. Do you have personal money mentors? It was great to see my mom, you know, go back to school and then make her own living. And she's made her own living since I was... It took her seven years to get her PhD and just the tenacity of how long it took her to do that. Also being a mom, you know, I think that the being a mom, I mean, when a lot of people say, why aren't there more women CEOs? And it's like so clear to me, it's because we also are raising our children and usually the first, you know, fortunately it's very equal in my household, but oh, there's so much that mothers do that just doesn't allow you to have the time to do what a guy can do if he has a wife that's doing all those things for them. So I think seeing my mom 
you know, really, I'm sad that she felt like she had to break from our family to do it, but it was the seventies. And I think a lot of women, they didn't understand any other way. And I'm so glad that our daughters see me doing what I love and being a, lately a very much at home mom. <laughs> Cause you know, my husband and I used to travel all the time speaking and now we are home all the time. And we got a puppy, which we never could have gotten before, but we're home all the time. But they totally see that I lo- I'm passionate about what I do. And I didn't have to choose. And my mother's generation really felt like a lot of my mom's friends got divorced that same year because that was the only way out. So I'm really grateful that that's not the only option. It doesn't seem like the only option for women now. Tiffany, you talked about being, I think you said money nervous or nervous about money. And in hearing you talk, it's kind of the last thing I would think you would feel. So tell us, when do you feel that? And how do you feel confident? How do you gain the confidence? The thing that always calms me down is just go to the budget, go look at the savings. <laughs> but I think during the pandemic, when an income source that had been steadily half of my income for 25 years went to zero, went to zero. <laughs> and I was like, that was huge. But I think it just pushed me of like, and I like my lifestyle. I love fashion. I love home design. I love going a little, we've been doing very little trips now that like, aren't very far away, but I really like our lifestyle and, and, you know, money, what we spent on is changed for sure during the pandemic, but there's been a certain points where I'm like nervous. Okay. That income stream went away and that grant we were supposed to went go away so that I'll feel nervous. And then I just, I try to get the long view. I'll look at my career. I'll look at this. It always works out. And I have now in the hopper, I have a book proposal for my next book and I have the series proposal. And so when you ask me if I feel nervous, I really think, well, what can I do next? Because I'm super interested in adapting and evolving. Because, you know, like the Webby Awards was like this huge thing. And then the, and the internet boom happened. And I just, I had to live through that wormhole, a financial wormhole. And it turned out okay. And I think I'm a big journal writer. And every week on my tech Shabbat, so my family and I, Friday night, we always have people over for dinner. We're Jewish, but we're not religious. But we always have a big Shabbat dinner outside now. And then, no phones, we, the no screens for a full day. And then I sleep the best that night. I have problems sleeping, so that's always great. And then I get up extra early on Saturday and I journal write. And I write about things that made me laugh, things I'm thinking about, things I'm appreciating. And I always have a section about money. Always. It's like, what good happened? What new inquiry came in? What step did I do to some bigger project that could bring in money? I've turned in my taxes or little things I accomplished or things I worried about. Oh my God, the braces cost 8,000. I didn't think she was going to need braces again. Like I just, <laughs> little moments. but here's the big thing. If I look back into my journals, which I often do, I often will go flip through. Usually the things I'm worried about didn't happen. And so a lot of it is psychological and it's really about when you start getting nervous, don't flow Kennedy. And I think about this a lot during the election, don't agonize, organize. <laughs> so, Instead of stressing, like think about little steps you can take for a next project or that book proposal or bigger steps and little steps that you can do each week towards your goals, towards anything. So money sounds interior for you. From what you've described, you thinking about money in terms of how it will allow you to continue doing what you love to do. Well, even, yes. And like, I love fashion. So on my book tour, I really did spend a lot of money on clothes, much more. And it was a certain point where my husband's like, I'm seeing all the boxes. 
<laughs> Can't I explained to him, I was like, this is such an investment for me because if I feel fabulous on stage in front of 500 people, I'm going to do a better job. I'm going to perform better. And I make a big part of my income from speaking. So it's like my costume. And I will feel slamming if I walk on that stage with that new coat and those great boots and the new hat. It is part of my investment in my work. I forgot that we got that like ring installed with the camera. And I, somebody, <laughs> shopper I was working with for my book tour, <laughs> she was dropping off these clothes for me. <laughs> I was like, oh, drop them off on Tuesday because Ken's going to be at work. This was before the pandemic. <laughs> and then he was like, I saw on the ring all the. <laughs> Busted. <laughs> I mean, like, even now, last night, my sister's like, oh, my God, I just found this website with these amazing clothes, and it's on there. And I know she ordered, like, tons, because she can. But I'm on there, and I'm like, oh, I want four things, but I should really just get one right now in this pandemic life. And I was, like, negotiating in my head over, oh, but you'll feel great when you do that talk and the shirt. Like, I'm having this whole, like, internal <laughs> negotiation. <laughs> well, it's good. It's important to know your values and to align your money with your values and find <laughs> find that line that you have to draw in order to make it all work out. Spending money on experiences for the family, like lately we've been renting, you know, renting Airbnb. One thing I really have found is when I travel, I really want it to be a beautiful place. I want to the experience. Like I, we will spend money on that. And, you know, we do, we make a big, pretty much do a dinner party every week because we're making dinner for other people. And I remember one financial person, this is way back when she was looking at my budget and we we're trying to save more for college. This was like 10 years ago. And she's like, well, the simple thing to be to cut out that $200 a week dinner party, because that's $800. You put that towards college. And I think about that often because no way that's like our family ritual. We love cooking for other people. It's a very wonderful dinner for people. And there's no way we're not going to do that. Like that to me is like an essential expense is to cook for people and make it fabulous every week and memory for our kids and something we've done for 11 years now. People have different values, right? So yours are clearly around experiences and connection, creativity. Close. 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 So I was just wondering, I mean, just... It's interesting where I was going before was your conversation about money has been very internal. Sometimes when we talk to people about money, there's comparisons with others and it can be more external. And sometimes people can really struggle with the differences in values. That's interesting. So I love a convertible. It makes me feel so alive. And I always had one from when I was 16, which I helped pay for. And then at the peak of the Webby Awards, when I was making a lot of money, I got an Audi TT convertible. And then I realized that that does not make sense to not have a four-door when you're a mom. So I got a Mini Cooper four-door. And I've had that forever. And it's not an expensive car. Actually, it's a very reasonable car, but very great design. And then I just turned 50 and my lease was up and I'm like, I want a convertible again. And I, that was definitely a negotiation in my head. And it's not an expensive convertible. I remember I actually really thought about like, oh, maybe I shouldn't. It's the pandemic. And, but I was like, I want one. It makes me so happy. I love the wind through my hair. I, it makes me feel alive. And I did get that convertible. I'm waiting for it still. And it, you know, it's a lease, so it's not going to feel like more money to me. 
but I did think about a whole bunch of things in making that decision. Like I really labored over that decision because I think of what you were speaking to of, oh, it was a little bit of perception issue. I have never really, except for that Audi TT, I've never really had a fancy looking car. I've had nice design cars, but I do think a lot is perception. I have enough money to live creatively and do the things I want to do, but I'm not rolling in it. And sometimes I feel like convertibles kind of feel that way, but I know it's truly a feeling of just joy for me to be in a convertible with my family or now my dog. Like I'm so excited to have the wind in my hair again. Do you worry about perception with money? I'm so glad you just said that. So we grew up in a very modest house that was like a starter house. You know, my dad was becoming a surgeon. My mother, we were a young family. And then he became very successful. And he's like, I want to buy a house. I want to build a house in Strawberry Point. And he bought, before there was any houses, and he bought a piece of property on the very end in the most gorgeous location. And he started building his dream home. And then my parents got divorced. So all the money he was hoping to get from the Tam Valley house to pay for the, the fancy new house, and not fancy, but just gorgeous and expensive, and it all went away. And he was in the middle of construction and interest rates in the 80s went up to 18%. And he was so stressed about losing everything. I mean, obviously the marriage was going away. He didn't know if he could keep the house. And he's like, come hell or high water, I'm keeping that house. So uh, we were the first family to do joint custody. And when I was 10 years old, we moved into one of the most beautiful houses, purely for the view, with no furniture. We had no furniture for three years. I, lived, I slept on a futon and so did my dad. It was a completely unfurnished house. Now, I will tell you that it took him about 10 years to crawl out of debt from that experience because he didn't have the first house to pay for the second one. The interest rates were killing him and he was going through a divorce and a contentious one. So after about 10 years, he finally started furnishing it. He dug himself out of the debt. He was so stressed about money all the time. That's what I grew up with. Then people will come to that house. I had high school friends come to my house and be so intimidated by that house that they wouldn't invite me to their house. And I, of course, couldn't tell the whole story of like, oh my God, people thought I grew up in that house when they did not know that I grew up with so much stress about money. And we almost couldn't keep that house. And I was embarrassed by the beauty of that house because it made people feel not wanting to invite me over to their house. Huh. And I'm ashamed of their house. And so, oh my God, I have gone out of my way in my life to not have that feeling that I know my friends had. They didn't know me very well. They wouldn't have it afterwards. But even to this day, like, it was very important when my father died for us to keep that house. And my sister was amazing, did a lot of things so we could keep that house. And it is a symbol in many ways. But even for his funeral, we had all these people come back to the house. And I knew there was a lot of people that had never been there and immediately thought I grew up with a silver spoon in my mouth. And we let our friends have their wedding there last year. And I was giving the opening speech and I'm looking at all these people who thought I grew up in that house, in a fancy house. And I actually had, I said, oh, the story of this house. Like I had to like kind of, because I did not want them to think, okay, this is why I've worked so fucking hard for everything in my life. 
there was so many issues around money. The thought that people would walk into that house and think that I grew up in that house and I had every advantage given to me, I do not want. And I think that the convertible, I also, it has a little bit of that for me, I think. Right, right. I feel like I'm about to cry. I'm like, it really, I don't want people to feel bad. And I feel like people get mad when they think that someone's been handed something that they had to work for. And I have worked for everything and had quite a journey with it. And issues around money, I've just worked my ass off to get to where I am to do a career I love to have security and, you know, to be in this home and all of these things that I worked really hard for. So I think it's a perception issue. Those feelings are so powerful. And thank you so much for sharing that. Tiffany, we could talk to you forever. This is so much fun, but we are coming to the close of our conversation. One question we have for you is based on the conversation so far, what else have you observed or thought about money that you want to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet? Well, I think one thing I've struggled with the right way to do it is around allowances. And, you know, we really did a lot of research, Ken and I, around this. And everyone's got chores here, but we did not tie them to the allowance. I call it being citizens of the family. This is what you're required to do. And I think I I still feel like that is an interesting conversation that we don't talk about enough with our kids. Because I, you know, now in the pandemic, no one's using money. So I got her an ATM. I'm like, you know, you'll have your allowance on that. But it feels very abstract. And she did work this summer as a babysitter. And you could see she just loved earning her own money and buying her own jeans with her own money. And I know that feeling. And I think that's really important. But I think the whole kind of allowance, I mean, and, and I worry I know this sounds weird, but I had so many hardships around money growing up and I equally worry that my kids don't. And a lot of, I think of where I am, where I am is because I had to fight for it. And when everyone's been saying, oh, I feel so bad for our kids about the pandemic, they can't go to class. I'm like, I think it's good for them. Go through a struggle. It's, it shaped me. And I think struggle is what makes people who they are. I think it's going to be defining, like the divorce was defining for me, but it made me appreciate all that I have so much more. They'll appreciate so much more when they can go to school again. And so I guess I do feel like struggle isn't bad. It's where you grow. Really powerful. We love to ask one last question. Who's going to be the next person you have a money conversation with? What's the conversation going to be? We did have part one of our financial planning meeting, which made me feel so good, but there was some things that needed to be updated. So the second meeting, actually, we're going to have next week, so that'll be the next one. But what was so (laughs) fascinating about that one is like all these questions he had about retirement. And one of the things that bonded my husband and I is we always want to do what we do. It might be, you know, maybe he's going to stop teaching at UC Berkeley and he'll do it in a different way, but we, we don't have a goal of retiring. Like that's not a goal. But I do think it's interesting to just think about, once again, if money was no object. I mean, I think that's ultimately, that word retirement sounds like your life gets very small and quiet, but I think it's really, what would you do if money is no object? And I think that's an important question to always ask yourself because it'll get you closer to what you really want to do in life and work towards that goal. Tiffany Schling, keep talking about money. Keep doing all the great creative (laughs) things that you're doing. It's been such a pleasure to to speak with you. And congratulations on your book and and your other projects, the the films. It just all sounds amazing. Thank you. Well, thank you for 
I mean, I, this felt like a real gift because I've never, I've done a lot of interviews in my life. I've never done one on money and I have so many thoughts about it. And it just was really powerful to be able to go into it with both of you. And I did get emotional and I think that's real. There's a lot of emotion around money because money is power. Money is power. It allows you to do things. It allows you to sleep at night. It allows you to make projects happen, make plans. And a lot of uncertainty with people right now with this pandemic. But I think the thing I will leave everyone with, which is kind of in this new film I'm working on, is humans' greatest skill is adapting. So if you used to make your income one way and the pandemic changed that, how else can you do it now? And just try to always think that throughout your life, you're going to adapt and evolve. And you have to believe in yourself to know that you will do that. And humans have done it throughout history. That's a great message. Perfect message to end on. Thank you, Tiffany Schlain. You are an inspiration. So keep it up. And we can't wait for the money movie and call us if you need anything. I will. I will be calling you for that. (laughs) Thank you, Tiffany. Sandy here with a personal finance insight. During our conversation with Tiffany Schlain, she talked about how she and her siblings continue to own their father's home. Keeping personal real estate in the family is something that often comes up in our work with clients, so let's take a look at what's involved. Many people become emotionally attached to their homes and for good reason. A home, whether it's a primary residence or a vacation home, is often the gathering place for happy and meaningful family events. Or it's a nostalgic place where the family has spent a lot of time during their formative years and still provides them with feelings of love and belonging. Sometimes the home is meaningful because it was built by someone special like a family member or because it has some historical significance. Other times the home is in an ideal location that is fun, relaxing, and inviting to return to again and again. When the attachment is strong, some families make a goal of keeping the home for future generations to enjoy. There are many different estate and asset transfer techniques that help families achieve this result. Rather than geek out and focus on the details of various strategies, I want to talk about some of the more practical things a family needs to consider before embarking down the transfer path. First, the family needs to have some very real conversations about whose goal the house transfer is. If the parents' desire to keep the home and the family for future generations is driving the process, they're likely going to need to put more effort and financial resources in place to make sure the transfer plan is well thought out and puts the least amount of burden on the kids. And keep in mind that the kids in this situation are often fully grown adults. This extra effort and financial resources is required because if the kids don't really want the home, chances are that guilt or no guilt, they'll sell the home as soon as they can to rid themselves of any unwanted maintenance or other burdens. If, on the other hand, the kids really want the home, they may need to be prepared to buy it from the parents if the parents are otherwise counting on liquidating the home to meet their own personal financial needs. Another scenario that can arise is when there are multiple kids with different levels of interest in the home and different abilities to help financially maintain the home after the parents are gone. You see, things can get tricky real quick. Having clear and direct conversations about the home and the surrounding financial circumstances is key to identifying the needs and desires of all family members. And remember, some or all of the individuals in the family may have an emotional connection to the home, so it's important to manage these emotions to avoid the conversation from getting overheated. Having a financial planner, estate planning attorney, or other trusted advisor in the room to manage the discussion may be helpful. An important part of the conversation is to understand how much money it will require to maintain the home on an ongoing basis. There's, of course, insurance, property taxes, and utilities, 
But don't forget about the cost of ongoing repairs, periodic improvements, and all the other hidden expenses of home ownership. It's super important to be able to develop a realistic budget and pad it with plenty of cushion, especially if there's a long desired time frame for keeping the home in the family. If the cost to maintain the home is high, plans need to be developed to determine how to cover the cost over time. Do the parents have a pot of financial resources they can transfer along with the home to help maintain it? Will the recipients be on the hook for covering the costs? Will one sibling need to buy the other sibling or siblings out to take full ownership of the home? Will the recipients need to rent out the home or otherwise generate income from the property in order to cover some or all of the maintenance costs? And if the property is generating income from rent or the sale of grapes from the vineyard or some other activity, who's going to manage all of that? If there's a mortgage on the home, plans will need to be developed for it too because mortgage loans from banks can't be transferred with the home from one generation to the next. Another big consideration for the family is who is going to be responsible for the non-financial decisions of the home. For example, setting aside where the money is going to come from, who will actually sit down and pay the bills? Who will take care of the maintenance? Who can use the house and when? What happens when there are disagreements? How will conflicts be resolved? You get the point. This sounds like a lot, and it is. But if keeping a treasured home in your family is important to you, don't be deterred. With proper planning, clear family communication, and guidance from an experienced financial advisor, you'll be able to craft a solution that best meets the unique needs of your family. If you're looking for additional help with financial planning topics like this one, please head over to our blog Fathom at Asperient.com slash Fathom and search whatever topic you are interested in. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.